following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Go ahead and find Romans 14 in your Bibles, please. Today we're going to discover God's solution to an all-too-common problem of believers causing one another to stumble. Now, if you're able, I invite you to stand as I read God's Word. I'm going to read Romans 14, 13 to 23. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And Lord, I pray you'd have your way in our hearts today, all for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're talking today about something that might be the hardest thing not to do, cause someone else to stumble. The Bible has a lot to say about stumbling, in different contexts, of course, but we know this, stumbling is always serious. It's something you don't want to do, it is something you don't want to cause. So regarding believing in Jesus or not, stumbling is used. In Romans 9, we saw this in verses 32 and 33. They did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, as it was based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So whoever stumbles over Jesus will be put to shame. In 1 Peter 2.8, it says that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and they stumble over him because they disobey the word of God. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Now, stumbling is also used regarding hindering others' faith in Christ, and that's the context with which we see it today. In Mark 9, 42, some of the most sobering words in the whole Bible, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, Jesus said, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. In Revelation 2, verse 14, Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. 
1 John 2, verse 10 says, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Now, I'm here to tell you today that the church, according to this passage of Scripture and the testimony of Scripture, is to be a no-stumbling zone. The church is to be a no-stumbling zone. Now, we have lots of no-zones in our culture today, but this is the one that is the most important for a believer. The church must be a no-stumbling zone. Now, we all know that the church is not always so safe. Christians have historically had issues and uh, drew lines around all sorts of things. And you can go in the not-so-distant past, and it would be like, you can't smoke if you're a Christian, you can't drink alcohol if you're a Christian, you can't dance, you can't gamble, you can't play cards. And some of those things, people still think that you can't do those if you're a Christian. More recently, uh, a lot is said about political views if you're a Christian, or certain schooling options, or parenting styles, even if you vaccinate your kids or not. It's about media and entertainment, lots of opinions there as well, video games and TV and movies and music and so much more. The list literally is seemingly endless. Now, we, what happens is this. We generalize things, we rationalize things, we justify things, and we say something like this. Well, hey, what I did, what I chose to do uh, as a believer only had this many bad parts. You know, it's not that bad. And I've, it's interesting. It's like you wouldn't say that about the food you ate last night. Like, you know, it only had so much poison in it. But the other thing we do is we misquote Jesus. We say, well, remember what Jesus said. What goes in doesn't defile the person. Well, you have to realize what goes in comes out. And you have to think through what's the outcome when you put something bad or not good into your heart or into your body. The church should be a no-stumbling zone. It should be the safest place on earth for a Christian, relationally. It ought to be a place, the church ought to be a place of love and acceptance and peace and harmony and judgment, right? Right? No, not judgment. I tricked you. I did it the first hour too. I got you. No, the church should be a place of love and acceptance and peace and harmony, not judgment, encouragement. There's another ment there, okay? Now, judgment on and stumbling of one another is all too common in the church. This is why this passage tells us don't do it. Fellow believers are to help one another grow in Christ and to not hinder them, but help. Romans 14, 1 to 12, we've been there the last two weeks. We first looked at not causing your brother to, uh, not judging your brother, not disdaining them. Last week we looked at the lordship of Christ, where the, the not judging and, and even the not stumbling is based upon. And in this passage today, we're looking at this idea where you decide to do something. You decide beforehand to do something. And your decision is, I'm not going to put a stumbling block or hindrance in a brother's way. I'm going to Pursue what makes for peace and mutual edification. I'm going to worship Jesus by loving his blood-brought bride. Um, I'm going to not stumble. Jesus uh, is preparing his bride. He shed his blood for the church. I am not going to do anything to mess up the church. Now, what's a stumbling block? A stumbling block, quite simply, is this. Picture a mousetrap. Now, I know there's all sorts of mousetraps. There's one that's called the humane one, where you, the, the mouse goes into like a little hotel, and then you go off into the wilderness and let the mouse free. That's, that's not a mousetrap, okay? 
That's just silliness, okay? Uh, a mouse trap uh, smacks the mouse when it gets the bait. So think of old school mouse trap, okay? The wooden kind with the little, you know, copper hinge and, and you stick it up here and then there's a, there's, a, there's a stick right there. It's called the bait stick. That's the stumbling block. Okay, scandalon in Greek, it means stumbling block and it's, it's bait stick. The, the thing you put, so you put the cheese, the peanut butter, uh, the sardines, whatever you're gonna try to get the mouse with and what you do is uh, you put it there so that they will go eat that and then get smashed, right? This is the goal, okay? A stumbling block is the part of a trap where the bait goes. So spiritually speaking, it's easy to make the, the connection. This is biblically speaking, whenever a believer purposely or even carelessly or even accidentally or even unlovingly does something that causes another believer to sin and not please Jesus. That's a stumbling block. You, you stumble them. It's not peaceful. It's not edifying. It's a hindrance to growth in grace. It is a roadblock. It is a barrier to sanctification. And here's the thing. All believers have different opinions. All believers have different convictions about things. About things that the Bible doesn't say you cannot do that, or the Bible says you have to do that. Just things in life. And even things that we attach a lot of importance on. But how are we then to live as a church being a no-stumbling zone? That's really tough, right? Yes, it is. That's why this passage is going to give us some some responses that we need to make, really. Like, what are Christians supposed to do? All these opinions, all these convictions, and we're not supposed to stumble one another. What do we do? Great question. This passage really reveals to us five Christ-honoring responses that make the church a no-stumbling zone. You practice these, you won't be stumbling other believers. These are things that make for peace. These are things that build other believers up. So we're going to go through them one by one, and we're going to start in verse 13, and here's the first. This is, this is the biggie, okay? This is the one that going in, you have to decide this, and it drives everything else. Number one, we have to resolve never to cause others to stumble. You make decisions all the time where you're like, before I get there, this is what I'm going to do, right? And it drives what you do. So this is the idea. You're going to make a decision before you get into the situation that you're never going to cause anyone else to stumble, now, when you look through these verses, and we've been in chapter 14 now for, this is our third week, and by the way, we have like six weeks left in Romans, so please enjoy it with me. After that, we're going into Ruth. After that, we're going into Ecclesiastes. But here, we're still in Romans, and when you see Romans 14, 1 to 12, and then you get into 13 to 23, there's no big break between the two. Okay, the argument just kind of continues. There's a slight change of focus and the shift is seen in the conjunction, therefore. Verse 13 starts, therefore. Because of all this, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Catch that? Any longer? It's because you're doing it. We're doing it. It's stop that. Stop passing judgment on each other. And the context here is still loving one another. Loving one another. Remaining steadfast with the gospel, with fellow Christians in a hostile environment that's against the gospel. But Christians want to fight each other, and then they lose grasp of the gospel in a hostile culture, and they're supposed to be banding together. We are to be banding together in Christ with mutual love on a mutual mission. So there's an exhortation here, right? Do not pass judgment on one another any longer. Refrain from it. And it flows from 
verses 1 through 12, so verse 13 just kind of continues it on, and it's due to God's absolute sovereignty and freedom in judging. Jesus is Lord. He's the judge. Refrain from judging one another. That's his job. So it's wrong when we judge. We, we saw that in the first 12 verses. It's, it's wrong when you, when you judge other believers or disdain them because you disagree over doubtful things or that you disdain them because of the choices they make or you downplay their opinions and convictions. You, you even determine their motives without even knowing their heart. You deny their relationship with God. You, you even then discount your own accountability to God like, well, they're accountable, but I'm not. And we know how easy it is to fall into that, don't we? Context is important, and in the context here in this passage, it was this. Uh, there were those who saw no need to avoid the uh, ceremonially impure food at the common meal that believers uh, would partake together in the New Testament time. But there were others who said, no, I need to refrain from eating such food, sacrifice to idols, let's say. And so what would happen is those that thought they didn't need to avoid it looked with contempt upon the ones that did feel like they need to avoid it. And then what they would do is they would take it a step further and say, well, I'm free in Christ. I can do this. So I'm going to do this in front of you. And I'm going to basically parade my, my less scrupulous convictions in front of you. I'm, gonna, I'm going to put them on display, almost like a gotcha. Like, you know, I'll show you. I'm free. You should be like me. But what this passage is about is nowhere near that. What it's about is thoughtfulness where you are actually thoughtful for tender consciences, when you think about other people and you go, wow, what might they think? What might they even be stumbled by? Because the faith of those that with more tender consciences is vulnerable. And what if they're shamed into doing certain things against their conscience, against their convictions? That could tear down their faith. That could make them weak. That could uh, bring them ruin in the Christian life, shipwreck even. So what Paul is saying is those that are strong, and by the way, if you're like, well, I'm, I'm in the strong category, if, if you say that, it, great, this is for you today. This is all pointed at the strong. The strong should love and show willingness to preserve peace by keeping convictions to themselves when the community comes together. Verse 13 says this, don't judge one another, and there's a play on words coming, don't judge, in the Greek it's krino, judge, don't judge one another anymore, stop that, but rather decide, determine, that's the same word, krino, judge yourself about it, never to put a stumbling block, the bait on a trap, or a hindrance, which is a cause for stumbling, in the way of a brother, don't do it. This is what Paul is doing. He's zeroing in on those with freer consciences. And he's saying, instead of judging each other, judge yourselves. Determine, decide not to cause anyone to stumble. And there's the play on words. Judge this. Don't do anything to cause someone with a tender conscience to stumble. Decide that. Decide not to damage the faith of, of the weaker brother with respect, and in this context, it was with traditional dietary practices by putting social pressure on them to eat food they considered was forbidden. And the whole reasoning behind this comes from chapter 12. Chapter 12, where believers are transformed by the gospel. This is a gospel issue, by the way, because it's about the lordship of Christ, and it's about your love for Christ, and Believers that are transformed by the gospel, that are, are renewed by God, 
they're discerning the will of God, and they're deciding how to live the, the beautiful gospel truths from chapters 1 through 11. This is how you live it out, Paul's saying. And in chapter 12, it starts that way. Therefore, because of the mercies of God, worship him as a living sacrifice, acceptable to God. Everyone who trusts Christ's sacrifice for sin fully yields to him. And, and what happens is the outflow of that is then you start thinking humbly about your place in the body of Christ. And then you treat everyone with sincere love. And then you have affection towards them. You have empathy towards them. But then you can't stop there. You have to apply it to real life. Apply it to your convictions. Apply it to matters of conscience. Now the rubber's meeting the road in the Christian life. You have to approach others with humility and desire to help them and not hinder them in their relationship with Christ. That's what you have to resolve first and foremost. That's why it, it comes first in the passage. Never cause others to stumble. Make that decision ahead of time. That's the first thing we see in this passage. The second thing we see in this passage is in verses 14 and 15, we must respect the convictions of others. We must respect other people's convictions. What do we like to do? We like to put them down for their convictions because they're not the same as ours. We, a lot of people feel insecure when someone else has a different conviction because they think that means that somehow they're looking down on them. Don't be so insecure. Verse 14 says, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. We know that. But look at the next part of the verse. But it is unclean to anyone who thinks it is unclean. You see that? I'm going to say a lot today. Did you see that? Because there's a lot to see in this passage. Paul had a relationship with Jesus that led him to a conviction, and the strong in Rome held the same conviction that nothing intrinsic to food that had been sacrificed to idols made it improper to eat. It was you know, steak or ham or whatever it was. And, and consuming, consuming this certain food or even doing another, a thing that isn't prohibited in Scripture or isn't commanded in Scripture is only improper for you if you're convinced it's improper for you. So this is how you have to apply it. I can't tell you what you should do about this thing or that thing unless it's ex expressly commanded in Scripture or prohibited in the Bible. You have to be convinced in what you want to do. You have to be convinced. You have to be convinced of what you don't want to do. Verse 15 says, if your brother is grieved, now we're getting into some strong words here. The current is getting really, really uh, tricky and, and really dangerous. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Now, what has chapter 12 and 13 and 14 been all about? Loving one another in Christ, being in harmony with the body of Christ. So if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're not walking according to love. Grieve is a very strong word. Literally distressed. It doesn't mean, oh, I'm a little upset. This is the kind of word that is, is describing severe inner turmoil. It's used in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 of the death of a loved one, the feeling you have when a loved one dies. It's used of a broken relationship in 2 Corinthians 2.14. And the idea is the cause of your emotional pain is because you feel pressured to compromise your convictions. And you feel pressure from other Christians. If we want to love as we're called to love, we are called to love one another. Obstacles to a believer with a tender conscience need to be removed. But it's not like those with a freer conscience says, 
You need to move that obstacle out of your way. No, those with a freer conscience, they get out and they go move the barrier and say, I love you so much. I'm moving this out of your way to protect you. Do you see that? The idea is what Jesus was saying in, in John 13, verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. He wasn't saying that like as a generality. It was to be specifically applied. Love one another. This is how all people will know if you belong to me, if you have love one for another. We cannot violate that command without disobeying God. But what does it take to truly love in the church? It is one thing to say, oh, I love you. It is another thing to live it where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. It is a whole other thing. There are disagreements among believers. There are differences among believers. Believers will even put demands on other people about things the Bible doesn't say not to do or the Bible doesn't say you have to do it. And so here's the, the principle. If a weaker brother or sister is grieved when you do something, you are forsaking love. Verse 15 gets even stronger. By what you eat... So it doesn't just say, don't, if they're grieved, it gets stronger. What, by what you eat, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. See why it's a gospel issue? Now we're in the shadow of the cross. And it's like, you know what? Christ died for this person. Don't mess with their faith. If the strong, by their, by their contempt or even their example, lead the weak to eat food they consider impure, they're going to create distress at the least and at worst destroy or tear down faith. It's a delicate situation. So for those with freer consciences, you want to walk in love? Then you need to think about and respect those with more tender consciences and do what is good. Verse 15 tells you that. I mean, verse 21 tells you the same thing. If you force a brother or sister into a corner regarding your choices, you're showing contempt for their soul. You're failing to live in love, and, and love should characterize our day-to-day -day life in Christ. You don't want to do something ruinous for another believer, or disastrous for another believer, or even demeaning uh, to Christ-centered community and witness. I mean, we put it up on the wall here at Grace Church of Orange. See right there? A Christ-centered community. Now, you can't say, I'm going to sit way in the back at the very far edge, because that doesn't apply to me as much. Uh, no offense to the people on this side, I I'm sitting on this side from now on. Uh, seriously, like, it can't be, well, hey, if you're over here, if you're over here, it applies to you more, so you better be on your toes. No, it applies to all of us. It applies to all of us. A and our, our Christ-centered community and our Christ-centered witness depends on how we treat one another, not how you think, but how you act. We must resolve to never cause others to stumble, and we must respect the convictions of others. There's no wiggle room here for us. But look at, number, look at the third thing. We'll look at verses 16 through 18. We must be careful not to bring reproach on the faith. There you have it. See, we have, we have this idea of, of proclaiming the gospel and making disciples, and, and if we're going to do that, then we can't do something that's going to give unbelievers a reason to say, well, you know what? That Jesus thing, it messes people up. It messes relationships up. Look at verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. See, if someone with a freer conscience acts contrary to love and brings ruin on those with tender conscience, people are going to conclude the gospel 
should be despised because it leads to messed up relationships. Do you realize that if you have messed up relationships with people in the church and you're talking behind their back and you're doing this and you're doing that, that unbelievers are, giving, are getting cause by you to reject Christ? Why would they want that? Why would they want Christ when it makes your relationship so bad? Now, by the way, I was at the men's retreat on Friday night and Saturday, and um, I got to privilege to preach on Friday night, and I was preaching from Philippians 3, and Paul was saying what a joy it was to write uh, to these believers. And I, and I told the men, and, I, and I'm telling you now, I love uh, doing life and preaching uh, to people at Grace Church of Orange because you, in the aggregate, you are very hungry for the word of God, and you read it, and you're like, we want to do that. You see it in the Bible, and you're like, yeah, we need to do that. Well, it's going to cost us something, but I love the fact, and that's why it's a joy. But Paul was writing to the Philippians, but he also wrote to the Galatians, who had some pretty, issue, pretty big issues. Uh, the Corinthians had some pretty big issues. Philippians had issues, too. The church in Philippi wasn't perfect, but they were a joy to write to because they were like, we believe this, we want to obey this. And you're like that, and I love that. But here's the deal. We're hearing this today. And, and we've all got to uh, line up with this. I, I've been just wrecked all week long going, man, this is tough. This is tough. If the strong insist on putting convictions into practice in such a way that damages the weak, there's resulting divisiveness that's going to bring criticism from unbelievers and hinder the gospel progress. We're not taking that off the wall. Look at verse 17, and you're going to come to a point here where you're like, whoa, this is cool because Jesus, Jesus has this kingdom, right? And Paul doesn't talk about the kingdom a lot in those words, but here he does. You're like, oh, I want to hear this. What, what does Paul say about the kingdom? For the kingdom of God, verse 17, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the gospel should not be spoken against because the kingdom of God isn't your choices and your convictions. It is about the saving righteousness of God in Christ. It is about the sovereign peace that he gives to everyone in Christ. And it is about the supernatural joy that we have in the Holy Spirit. That joy that goes beyond our experience or our condition in the moment. The Spirit of God gives gifts that manifest themselves in, in right relationships. If your relationships in the body of Christ are all messed up, then you're not walking by the Spirit, you're walking by the flesh. There should be peace in the church. There, it should rejoice in jo result in joy. Look at verse 18. It says, whoever serves Christ like this is acceptable to God and approved by men. Oh, we all want that, don't we? We all want to please God. We all want to get along with other people. What did it say about Jesus? What did the gospel say? He continued to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. You want to be pleasing to God and for people to say, well, that person helps me, not hinders me. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Key is that you want to serve Christ and you want to be acceptable, you want to be pleasing, you want to be approved by God. Because here's the deal. If you're a believer today, and that means that you have legally been declared righteous by God, but it doesn't just go on a piece of paper, it goes into your life, and your life is changed. So if your life is not changed from believing in Jesus, you're probably not saved. God's kingdom is manifested in saving power, and it, and it flows out into healthy relationships in the body of Christ. 
what this means is those who, who please God live like this. It's, I call it supernatural discipleship. This is not powered by you and me. This is supernatural discipleship. Remember where it says in, in chapter 12 we're to be unconformed? Unconformed to the world? Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind? Where the Spirit of God uses the Word of God in your life as you attend to the Word of God and you listen to the Word of God and then you obey the Word of God in the power of God. It's discipleship. This is what the Bible teaches, right? Love, faith, obedience, obedience-based discipleship. There is no other kind of discipleship to Christ. It's based on the sovereignty of God. You say, I believe in Jesus. It's based on the, the authority of Scripture. You say, I obey Jesus. And then when you hear the word, when you read the word, you say, I have to obey the word. This is how I'm conformed to the image of Christ. This is how I will grow in Christ. This is how I'll become sanctified. I'm not just reading the Bible for info. I'm reading it for transformation. And if you don't do that, you might be shown to be false. Malcolm Muggeridge said this, never forget that only dead fish swim with the stream. You notice that about fish? They're always going against the current. That's how you get strong. N don't forget that only dead fish swim with the stream. Don't be a dead fish. You swim against the riptide of the worldly, sinful ways of relating with others. Say, I don't want to bring reproach on the faith. Because for me, it is absolutely essential, according to the word of God, that if I want to please God and make progress in holiness and in mission, I'm going to resolve never to cause you to stumble and to respect your convictions and be careful that my choices don't bring reproach on the faith. Right? You seeing this? Look at number four with me, verses 19 to 21. We must be concerned with right relationships, right? Of course. We must be concerned with right relationships. Verses 19 to 21. Those who are transformed by the gospel should pursue what makes for peace and upbuilding, edification. Verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Right? Jesus is Lord of all. We looked at that last week. He has provided all we need to live and to love. So we have to pay the debt we owe, as Romans 13 says. God commands us to love. It's the most urgent need right now. Do it now. The power to love is God's. Love others in the power of Christ. You want to have a clear conscience? You want to have a Christ-centered, clear conscience? Well, then don't wrongly judge other believers. They're accepted by God. They're under the lordship of Christ. They're, they're going to be judged by God. And don't cause believers to stumble. Look at verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy, literally tear down the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. These are imperatives, people. These are imperatives. This whole passage, do not destroy, do not cause to stumble, do not grieve, do not destroy, repeat it again. Don't destroy God's work due to your free, selfish choices. Verse 20 is the opposite of verse 19. Believers are to seek to build up and edify others. So don't do what is wrong. Doing what you are free to do is wrong for you if it causes someone else to sin. So verse 21 has a strong admonition. You are to refrain from anything that causes a fellow believer to fall into sin. Look at verse 21. 
It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, he's not saying change your convictions. He's saying don't put them on public display. Refrain from doing things or consuming things. And, and in this context, it was consuming food that was uh, thought to be ceremonially impure during the meal that believers were sharing. Don't do that. Now, go with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Go there because it's a parallel passage here that Paul is talking about, and it's important for us to see. I'm going to look at verses 4 to 13. Paul says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. Drop down to verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person has destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Gospel issue here. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Martin Luther said the Christian is the most free Lord of all, subject to none. In the very same sentence, he said a, a Christian is the most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Peter said, 1 Peter 2.16, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. You have to protect those with tender consciences. Their faith is important. Your thinking is going to differ with other Christians, but do not interfere with their faith in Christ. Do what will help them most. What will help them most in this situation is deferring and not practicing your convictions. You resolve, I'm not going to cause another to stumble. I'm going to respect their convictions. I'm going to be careful not to bring reproach on the faith. And I'm going to be concerned about our relationships more than my choices. And look at the fifth thing, verses 22 and 23. We must be convinced in what we approve. The very thing you say is good for you, you have to be convinced about it. Paul says to the strong, oh, you continue to be happy in your convictions. Uh, he's not trying to rein in their freedom. He's saying, hey, your transformed mind is going to think through the will of God, but use your convictions in ways that do not damage others. Look at verse 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Now, this has been taken wrongly to say, well, see, I don't share my faith with anyone because uh, Romans 14, 22 says the faith that you have keep between yourself and God. That is a misuse of the passage. You are to share your faith in Christ. You are to, to preach the gospel to whoever you can. The faith that you have, literally the convictions that you have, you keep your convictions between you and God. Don't go pushing them on everybody else. It says, blessed, here's a beatitude, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. You don't want to be in that situation where you're like, well, I was wrong, I'm condemned by what I approved. You see the clarification? Your self-denial is not an assault on your freedom. It's not a criticism of your beliefs. You're free to hold your convictions in the privacy of your own home or with like-minded believers, just not in the presence of those who disagree. And by the way, this is not a license to sin behind closed doors. This is about things not forbidden in Scripture. This is about matters of conscience, areas of freedom. 
So if you are convinced in your own mind that you can do something that the Bible calls sin, that doesn't let you off the hook. You can't use Romans 14 wrongly like that. You have to ask yourself the question, am I walking by faith or walking in the flesh? I mean, we are living in a very permissive church culture nowadays in America. Uh, a lot of people are really more into binge watching than Bible digesting. There are plenty of things that are bad for all Christians. Uh, we have a fixation on bright and shiny things, do we not? And what happens, we will often choose to ignore the clear teaching of Scripture. We'll filter it out and say, well, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, what does it matter? Remember, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your free conscience is blessed by God when you are undisturbed by doubts in doing the thing you would want to do, where you are sensitive to the Holy Spirit's conviction, where you filter everything through Christ and Scripture, and you ask, what's my motive? Am I trying to please myself or trying to please God? Is this just me time or is this Jesus? And I want Jesus to be pleased. I mean, if you're going through this passage and you're looking at it either legalistically or licentiously and trying to find your loopholes, how you can do your thing, no. You are using this passage wrongly. Here's what verse 23 says. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith or conviction is sin. The strong words. It contrasts with the beatitude in verse 22. Blessed, happy is the one who does not judge himself for acting in accord with what he discerns to be the will of God. But condemned or convicted is the one who eats forbidden food in that context by Jewish custom, but, but doubts that they're eating it being the right thing. The, the tender conscience is condemned by partaking in the thing that, that you feel free to do, but they don't. Because it doesn't come from faith on their part. They're co it's coming from peer pressure or fear of disapproval or fear of ridicule. So do not do it if you don't believe you should. Any act on your part for, uh, apart from faith is sin. You live by that rule. See, everything you do should be because you believe this will honor the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe something is wrong and then you do it, it's a sinful thing for you to do. Because you're doing it with a divided heart. You know, that, that's even if you were incorrect in thinking that it was a wrong, act, wrong action in the first place. You getting that? That's kind of a, a tongue twister. It's a, it's a mind bender, but seriously. And here's the other thing you can't do with this passage. Go on some kind of mission to get everyone uh, going along with your point of view. Uh, nothing in this passage says change one another. It says change your attitude. This is about having a tender conscience and being free in Christ to make choices on things that are not commanded or prohibited. Uh, Paul's getting pretty countercultural uh, with us here in the West, isn't he? Uh, this is kind of a tough one. He's advocating refraining from your freedom, refraining from exercising your own rights and your power. Even if something is clear uh, on your conscience here, free on a matter not clear in Scripture, you're going to say, well, to help someone weaker, I'm not going to do that thing. That goes right against the grain of our desires. Romans 14 is about people with tender, oversensitive consciences. And conscience, by the way, is a very sensitive instrument that God has given you that needs to be calibrated and recalibrated over and over again with the objective word of God. Uh, sometimes your conscience can get hardened or seared to the point that it allows you to do things 
with a clear conscience that are wrong. Romans 14 is not about that, okay? This is about the oversensitive conscience that will not allow someone to do something that the word of God does not allow or at least doesn't prohibit. Um, People will try to use this passage and say all these things about contemporary controversy in our culture, uh, this applies. No, not if the thing is forbidden in the word of God. You can't apply Romans 14. Okay, Romans 14 does not make um, sin something on which we can agree to disagree on. Now, how do you apply this? What kind of examples uh, does this bring up? And, you know, you can't be exhaustive with it because someone's going to say, well, that's the list. You know, there's lots of examples. Um, It could be your traditions, your upbringing, where you think you've been conditioned to feel that certain practices or behaviors are wrong for all Christians. But God doesn't prohibit that thing. Someone asked me just a couple weeks ago, how come we don't do such and such at Grace Church of Orange? I'm like, because we're free not to do it because the Bible doesn't say we have to do it. This could be uh, the Bible translation you use, like King James only people, right? Or, or what kind of church government you think is proper or what kind of musical styles or singing you like or how people should dress. I mean, you might not like the fact that I'm wearing what I'm wearing right now. Well, I'm doing something important. I'll have shorts on later. You have all sorts of ideas, and so do I, of what's acceptable, right? What about Halloween? What about video games? What about certain card games? What about alcohol? What about going to church? What about music and movies and TV? What about language? Like, is mild profanity okay? And there's so much more, right? So much more. See, Romans 14 is a mandate for loving one another and patiently bearing one another while you're holding all these opinions. See, God wants your conscience aligned to his word. And will you constantly expose your conscience uh, to the word of God so that your conscience goes on learning, your conscience goes on being strengthened, your conscience keeps on being freed in Christ? Because you cannot ignore the warning signs of your conscience. If you're not a believer today, I'm praying that God awakens your conscience, convicts you of your sin, opens your heart to the gospel truth that Jesus died for our sins and was buried and rose on the third day, that you would believe, 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. If you're a Christian today, I would hope that that you would know that your conscience is captive to the word of God that you live accordingly. Now, I would also hope that you wouldn't get so introspective that you can't take a step, that you get frozen in some way. What about, what about if you walked in here today and you have a bad conscience? You're, you're hounded by your conscience. Well, there's a cure for a bad conscience. It is the forgiveness we know in Christ. Write down Hebrews 9.14. Write down Hebrews 10.22. Look those up later. Hope for a clear conscience in Christ. You know what self-examination should show us? Daily repentance. It should, it should point us in the way of daily repentance and walk in freedom in Christ. That's what it should do for us. But let me tell you how it needs to be. I'm going to put this in the first person. I hope you can relate. Here it is. If I know that you have a conviction about something that Scripture does not condemn or forbid, I won't do it. It's not an option for me. I won't do it. I won't serve it. I won't eat it. I won't drink it. 
And I'm not going to try to talk you into it. I'm going to respect your convictions. You're more important to me than my freedom. That's the heart that God wants to get into us on this. But that's not usually how it goes, is it? That's not usually how it goes. It, it's usually more like judgment and disdain. It's, it's more like peer pressure. I'll give you an example. Let's say a group of people gather together, a small group of people, and they want to drink alcohol. And the host knows that you're coming and you do not drink. And so when, they get, when you get there, they ask you, hey, are you okay with this or not? We won't do it if you don't want us to. That's peer pressure and that's wrong. They may be too shy to say no. They may not be the person that wants to make other people feel bad. If I know that you have an issue with it, I'm not even going to plan to serve it. See, here's what your attitude should be. If I know you have a conviction about something, if you think something's inappropriate, something God doesn't expressly forbid or command, something not specifically instructed in Scripture, I'm not going to do that out of love and care for you. I'm not going to parade my convictions in front of you and say, ha, 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 I'm better than you. I won't push my liberty on you. I will withhold my freedom for you. I'm not against you. I'm for you. I want you to be built up in the faith. I'm not going to pressure you or mock you or harass you about your choices or your opinions or your convictions. I'm going to voluntarily restrict mine. That's walking in love. That's pursuing peace and what makes for mutual edification. And that pursuit on our part has to be relentless. We have to fight with ourselves over it. That we have to chase down peace. When I do what is right and you do what is right, you know what happens? God builds us both up. We're both blessed both more sanctified, both built up. You lose nothing in the transaction. We always feel like we're going to get cheated out of our fun. If I voluntarily restrict my freedom, that I'm just going to lose out. But what you forget is that you gain so much more when you do that. You, you voluntarily restrict your freedom for the good of other people because Christ died for them. So they're valued. And, and the idea is don't hurt those who love Jesus. Basically, love Jesus and do as you please. But if what you please will hurt someone else, don't do that. Communicate well with one another. Think about it. If you have a, a thought to marginalize someone or to malign them, you're just getting one step closer to causing them to stumble. Uh, Mean-spirited people don't care about feelings. They cause fractures without even a twinge of conscience. And sometimes you will stumble someone accidentally, ignorantly, and you will quickly, quickly, make it right and say, oh, I didn't realize. Love plans out what is good for those in the body of Christ. Don't cause your brother to stumble. Don't, don't try to build a better mousetrap. The church must be a no stumbling zone. We must resolve to be in harmony. We must be resolved to be in harmony on mission for the gospel in, in mutually upbuilding, no stumbling ways. Uh, just resolve, just decide, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to cause others to stumble. And I'm just going to be convinced in what I think is right, but not parade it around to everyone else. And I guess in closing, I would say this. I think that we need to be more careful with each other and think about each other more than thinking about ourselves. Amen?
Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you uh, that, that you, Lord, are preparing your bride, the church, and you're displaying your character in a unified church that shows gospel love on gospel mission to a watching world, all for your glory. And I pray, Lord, by your grace, you would help us not to do anything to, to grieve or stumble or offend, that you, by your grace, would give us strength to sacrifice our freedom for one another's good. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.